Hey guys, and welcome to Faith and Failures. I am so excited today. Um, today's episode is going to be about my personal testimony, the things that I had to go through to get to where I am now, and kind of the fire and the reason behind this podcast. Um, I want to share a little bit with you of my vision of why I'm doing this, why I'm doing it the way that I'm doing it. This is not a denominational driven podcast. This is a podcast of people that believe and people that don't believe, but we are all together in the search for truth. And that is kind of my vision. Um, Usually I will have somebody that is being interviewed by me, but today it's just going to be me talking to y'all and just kind of a one-on-one, very personal, very meaningful topic to me because um, the name of this podcast is uh, Meth Head to Minister. And so this is kind of the first time I've preached it before, but I'm kind of putting it out there for everyone to hear and to know from my lips, not from someone else. Uh, This is my testimony, and this is what God has done for me. And this is why, a major reason why I believe the way that I do. And a major reason why, the main reason why I um, have the faith that I do is because from the filth that God brought me from. I just wanted to start off today, giving you a little intro and letting you know I am so thankful for the response that I've had. If you have Facebook and you want to join the conversation uh, once or twice a week or three times a week, it's a, a Facebook group called Faith and Failures, just like this podcast. It is based and formed around the same idea and vision of what I have for this podcast. It's for people who don't know all the answers but we're in a search together for truth, not divided by denomination, but we're united and we are trying to just figure things out. And so I think that, um, and this is just a personal opinion, that God is not scared of our questions. He is He is the ultimate answer. And so we as church people, we as people that don't go to church, or you don't believe, you're on the fence. We don't need to bash each other to try to find truth. We need to try to help each other figure it out. And so that's kind of the vision of the Facebook group. And also, if you have any questions on Twitter, you can follow me at Stephen Tillman, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-T-I-L-M-O-N, and also on Instagram at the same, and use hashtag faith and failures. That's one way you can interact with this podcast. Uh, So to get started, I want to say thank you. Within the first couple of days of launching, the it was kind of the pre-launch of this podcast, uh, the group on Facebook, over 200 people decided to jump on there and become a part of the group. That's just amazing to me. It just it, it solidifies the vision that God has given me and the fire that he's given me and just to kind of give people a platform to where they can question things and talk about things. And, and if you're in this group and you're listening to this podcast right now, do not be afraid to say something, to ask something. And I am not going to be the person just because I'm a minister of the gospel that's going to say that I know all the answers. That would be foolish for me to say that. And I don't know if I will be able to answer everything. And I don't want you to think that somebody's going to have some earth-shaking, thunder and lightning answer and solve all your problems because that's usually not, it's not how it works. It's usually learned and figured out through a process, which is what I'm going to be talking to you about today. I wanted to give a shout out to the people who have already listened to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, um, within the first couple of hours of launching, it had already had over 25 downloads, which 
just starting off to me, that's amazing. And we've already had people starting monthly giving. If you want to give a one time or if you want to give reoccurring every month, you have choices or a custom amount. You could do $5, $10. I just want to say that I appreciate that. And that means so much to me um, because this is a ministry and that will help me continue to be able to uh, put out podcasts like this. Remember to like, share, and download the episode. Putting out new episodes every week. So make sure you keep an eye out for when we do. If you don't know already, I have started another podcast with a childhood friend of mine, Julian Pizarro, and it is called The Beardy Cactus. Look it up on iTunes. You can find us. Um, If you like a little bit of comedy with a dash of faith, I think you'll enjoy it. So let's dive into today's episode. The topic is um, where God brought me from after I put myself there. I was born on uh, the evangelistic field which if you know what an evangelist is, that is someone who travels from church to church. They're not a pastor of a church. They just go and preach at other minister churches. So that's what I was born into. And then um, I don't know how old I was, but they came off the field. They became full-time pastors. And so I was raised in the church house since the day I was born. So being involved in the church was not something that was new to me. And it was actually ingrained in me from a very very early age that that was just a part of our everyday life. So my father was a pastor. Uh, my mom, a lot of times, would be it would be smaller churches, so she would be like the children's minister. So pretty much every aspect of the church, my parents would do. My mom at one time did the books of the church. She's very gifted in that. She knows numbers. She's really good. My parents were always together, never separated, never anything in my mind. Uh, growing up as a child, my parents were the ideal relationship that I wanted to have when I was older. And so to skip ahead a little bit, you fast forward to now and I've been divorced. Back then it was like, it was a badge of honor to not be divorced. And today it's kind of like the no- the new norm. And so being raised in the church, like when we moved to Texas, when I was 12, going to the seventh grade, I would clean the church. We had a, a parsonage, which is what the church would provide provide for a pastor and his family and they would live there as a part of their payment and we would go and we clean the church I would do the vacuuming my brother would clean the bathrooms so I was raised up in the church to serve I was raised up to where that was a part of our our weekly routine is you're in church whenever the doors are open and then when the doors weren't open for a congregation we were there uh, doing other things that need to be done. And then when I got older, you know, mowing the yard and stuff like that too, going over and mowing uh, older people in the church, uh, they couldn't get out and do it themselves. And my dad would be busy with other things. So I would load up the trailer and uh, haul a lawnmower over and mow the yard for him. That was just a part of life. And so I grew up in the church serving and it at times was a taxing atmosphere, but it never felt like it was, Um, a weight, if that makes sense. It never felt like it was something that was like weighing me down. Yes, I was a kid. It was something that I had to do. and But it wasn't a taxing thing to where I felt the stress of it. My parents never allowed that to filter through onto us kids that we felt like it was a stressful environment um, and that everything had to be perfect. It it wasn't that kind of environment. It was a very healthy environment. Uh, So much so that when I was six, my dad uh, bought me a drum set. And that's where I first kind of fell in love with music. And uh, my dad thought that it was a big mistake when he, (laughs) when he first heard me play. But 
after a few days and and eventually it got to where he was like well we you know i think he, we got something here he actually has a gift so much so that he took a piece of the drum set started off with a hi-hat and a snare and he would slowly as i would get better and progress in doing well at this instrument he would bring more to the church eventually to where the whole drum set was up there so it was a kind of a growing ground to where most kids don't have that you know and it was a my parents were together they were always supportive of me whatever i wanted to do uh you know you have the typical you know older generation dad that's like you know walk it off and uh i went to school in snow uphill both ways and in in uh shoes with holes in them and all this other stuff. But that was the typical, like if you're my age, I'm, I'll am i be 35 this year, your parents and your dad was probably exactly the same. And it was because their dad was that that exact way or worse. And so with every generation, it seems like things get lighter and lighter and we don't take things, we don't see things with the, through the same eyes. It's like they get, it gets a little faded every generation. Because like now my son, he does... He has like one chore, and if we have anything outside, we're doing. He likes doing outside stuff like mowing and digging and stuff like that, you know, typical boy stuff. But he gets so frustrated when we ask him to vacuum the house. We have three dogs, two of them are bigger dogs, and then we have a little medium sized dog. They, the medium size and the the youngest one that's a Doberman, they fight all the time. So there's there's hair that gets everywhere all the time, and he gets so frustrated because he's asked to vacuum, you know, two or three times a week. And it's just like it, and he's been playing video games all day long, and it, it's just like it, it ruins his world. He don't understand when really, if he really understood, life is really good. He has two parents that love him very much and that that care for him, and he has a home to come home to, and there's not yelling and screaming and fighting. So he has it. He has it relatively well. But then he also is um, being trained when we go and clean the church. Uh, I never, when I was a kid, did I ever think I was training for ministry later down the road that was never a, a thought to cross my mind growing up i had this in my mind just me just my vision towards my parents i have this perfect picture of what marriage should be now don't get me wrong my parents weren't perfect but i'm saying from my point of view looking up to my parents and my dad and and my dad wasn't one of those dads that pushed me into sports if i wanted to do sport he'd let me do it and do everything i could do everything that he could to get me to where i could play uh, but one of his rules and one of my rules to my child is if it comes between us and church, you're not going to do it. First of all, I know my son's probably not going to be an all-star somewhere. If he starts accelerating and doing, you know, the best of everybody, that's great. But he's also got to learn that God comes first. And so that's the main objective with having those kinds of rules is to really ingrain his mind that God has to come first because there's going to be a time in his life like there was in mine that I'm going to talk about in a minute to where everything pivoted on when if I turn to God or not. And so I grew up in this house to where I was loved, I was cared for. Uh, my mom, uh, sorry, Jonathan, Jonathan's my brother. Uh, I was the favorite of my mother. And I kind of think my dad was the favorite or my, uh, my brother was the favorite of my dad. I don't think either one of them will ever admit that, but that's kind of how it was. So I feel like sometimes I got I got away with more stuff when mom was on my side. I have this perfect picture of all, you know, what family is supposed to be uh, from a minister's household. We pray together. Like when my dad would spank me, he would, uh, in Missouri, where I, where I grew up before I 
came to Texas, there were basements. And he would send me down into his office. He had an office where he would go. He even had a little closet uh, that they built. They uh, sectioned it off and made it pretty much into a two-story house that they ended up putting their bedroom, a new bedroom down there. So he would send me down to his office and he said, you need to pray and ask God to forgive you for what you've done. I have no amazing story of what I did. I don't know what a lot of the circumstances were. I mean, I was younger than 12, so it wasn't like I went and murdered somebody or that was his way of telling me that when I mess up, God's the first person I need to ask for forgiveness for from. And then from him, like I would put on a show, I would be, <laughs> I'd be down in the basement and I would be just uh, wailing and uh, calling on the name of the Lord, crying out and tears flowing and snot dripping and hoping that daddy heard me up through the vents and would show a little mercy. <laughs> so I don't know if you've ever done that. I'm sure I'm talking to a bunch of perfect people, but I put on a show because I didn't want daddy to come down and beat me. <laughs> but it, no, most of the time it didn't, it didn't work. But uh, he would come down and he he would talk to me. He would always explain, and I do this to my son too. He would always take the time to explain to me what I did wrong, why I'm in trouble, and what's about to happen. Now, my dad would say to grab your ankles. He had a, a board. And so I, <laughs> my dad told me years later that he had to pull back some laughing. So it was so difficult for him because when he would say to grab my ankles, well, all of a sudden my ankles came up to where my kneecaps were because I, <laughs> I didn't want to bend all the way over. And so that's the kind of, my dad spanked me, but there, it, it was not a beating. There's a difference or a whooping. He spanked me and rightfully so. He, pro- he gave me a lot of more chances uh, than I deserved. And then sometimes, you know, maybe spanked me when I didn't. But what parent doesn't? I, I've done that with my child. Sometimes I lose my temper and I'm like, go to your room. And by the time I get back there to where his room is, I realize that what he did really wasn't that bad. I'm just uh, a little short fused today. You know, because uh, you you guys may not know this, but parents sometimes uh, we have short fuses, and uh, so if you're not a parent yet and you don't have a short fuse, it's coming, it's coming. So we fast forward a little bit to my uh, years of high school. Now, it some of this will branch in with another podcast I'm doing called The Bearded Cactus, where I have a a childhood friend of mine. We actually met when I moved to Texas, and he was a whole part of that. Uh, he was a part of the group. Uh, the reason I'm bringing up high school is because I want you to understand that there was n- there was no outside influence. There was no uh, negative. I didn't have anybody that was uh, really a negative influence with me to me while I was in high school. Um, all the stuff that I started doing was after I turned 21 because legally then I could as far as drinking and stuff like that. Now, you might be listening to this podcast and you're like, well, I don't believe drinking's wrong. I'm not here to judge that or even try to argue that point. There are scriptures that say one thing, and then people want to argue and say, well, Jesus' first miracle was water into wine, and all this stuff. Just research it. Don't take other people's advice or their stance on it, because the relationship between you and God is between you and God, nobody else. Aside from that, I waited until I was 21 to actually do it, because before that, I couldn't legally get into a bar. I couldn't legally get into a, a club unless you're 18. Then they put an X on your hand and you couldn't drink. So there was almost no point of going. But I started developing, uh, once I started drinking, 
I enjoyed the way that I felt when I got tipsy. And so it started it started breeding this euphoric atmosphere to where who I was, which if you don't know this, if you've never drank or you, you drink all the time, it usually magnifies either the last emotion that you felt before you started drinking. So if you started drinking while you were mad and you're drinking because you're mad, you're going to end up probably fighting that night. If you go out um, and you're looking for promiscuous stuff, you're going to be thinking about that, especially while you're drunk. And so it magnifies kind of however you were right before you started drinking. And then your personality traits are magnified even more. So if you like to argue, you're going to end up arguing and probably fighting. Or if you like to love, you're probably going to end up trying to love. And so all these things are uh, tangled in together. And so I found out that there were um, people that were not in the church that also liked to drink. And so I was raised inside of the church inside this dome of protection that I had no clue this other world existed. Now, I knew it existed from a biblical standpoint because it's all throughout the Bible of the debauchery and, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah and all these things that that were so wicked and, you know, all the extreme, but I had never seen it firsthand. I had never witnessed any of this firsthand, never never been to a club, didn't know anything about a bar, had no clue the atmosphere was so intoxicating. So I start being drawn out by these other people that that were into the same thing. They enjoyed that atmosphere, and it was a lot of fun. And I actually met my first wife at a party that I threw at my parents' house that was out of town. Now, at this point in my life, my uh, parents trusted me a lot and because I built that trust. I hadn't given them any reason not to trust me. And they would go out of town a lot. They would get away and, and either... I don't know where they were going, what they were doing, but they were, whatever they were doing, I, I had the house to myself. And let me explain to you. At this point in my life, I was one of those kids that my parents had a 4,500 square foot house with a huge in-ground pool on 15 acres. I was, my parents were not rich when I was growing up, but at this point in my life, um, through certain things, they had accumulated a lot of money legally. I took full advantage of that to where I didn't really have to work. I really didn't have to do anything. And I'm you know, just fresh out of high school. I went to college a couple of years. I came back home. I was abusing the trust that I had spent my entire life building with my parents. And I didn't even realize it because the people I was hanging out with was doing the exact same thing in their own little worlds. And so I ended up inviting my first wife to that party. And through the drinking was how eventually we ended up getting married. And we got married pretty quick. And then we started doing something, uh, we started trying to get sober, and we couldn't really handle each other, because we didn't get to know each other being sober, we got to know each other under the influence. And so then we moved to Orlando, we had Tristan, our son, and then uh, going to college, and then she left me, and then I moved back to Palestine, uh, you know, fast forwarding a little bit through this, because we're not talking about this time in my life. After she left, before I came back to Palestine in Texas... I started dabbling in uh, cocaine and ecstasy and, you know, all these other experimental drugs. And so living in Orlando, you can get cocaine. Guys would tell me, hey, man, uh, you want to come to the bathroom? And I know this sounds terrible, but this is what it it was. I had long hair and a beard, and they would call me Jesus. And so the preacher's kid from Texas was over in the clubs in the bathroom snorting cocaine and the people who knew him, nobody knew my real name. They all called me Jesus. 
that was not my choice. I did not choose that, but that's kind of a slap of shame, but that's just, that's, those are the facts. And so getting hooked on cocaine and, and I would do it. I love going out and partying and drinking and getting drunk and then going and, and finding some cocaine. I always had to hook up. People let me in the clubs. I got well-known around there. Photography people were like, hey man, you want to, and I, so I started taking photos in the clubs with their equipment and, and just having fun. I didn't have to pay for drinks. I didn't have to pay for anything. And so I got addicted to this lifestyle of somehow, somehow I got into that I was, I guess, borderline famous in Orlando that if I went to the right clubs, I can get whatever I wanted anytime I wanted. And so this, this lifestyle became an addiction to me that I didn't even realize I had. And so we fast forward because I started spiraling pretty bad. I, I moved, I made the move back to Texas and a cousin of mine, John, he actually came and helped me move. And this is, this is the first time that John, in my eyes, saved my life. And he's going to come up again uh, later in the story. And it's going to be, um, I, I really, really hope one day I can have him on the show because he's he is, he is the reason why I'm still alive today, I believe. Because he, he pulled me out and he rescued me. And so this part of the story, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, is just the first time. He helped me load up everything, and then we drove that day. After we loaded everything up, my mom stayed behind. She was selling the house. And so we made it back to Texas. Some other things happened that me and my first wife didn't work out. And so we, I, was, I wanted to try again. It didn't happen. I couldn't stop drinking. I couldn't keep a job. And then I started somehow through somebody who, you, who I used to drink with when I came back. I threw another party, and this guy came in to the bathroom, and he said, Hey, man. And I just got done with uh, the cocaine rampage in Orlando. He said, hey, man, you like cocaine? I said, yeah. He said, I got something. It, it will last even longer, and you don't have to take as much at one time. I have never in my entire life heard anything about meth. I had no clue what it was, but his claims was right up my alley. He said it lasts longer, and you don't have to take as much, and it's cheaper. That just checked everything off my list. So I said, absolutely. So he chopped some up on the counter and I snorted it up and it burnt like crazy. And I stayed up the rest of the night, blasted out of my mind, not even understanding that what I just started was going to ruin the next few years of my life. Now, I honestly cannot recall and tell you everything that happened in this time period, except between the time that I started this and the time that the tornado stopped, I had left so much damage in my path that I had destroyed so much of mine and other people's lives that to this day is still is not being rebuilt. So all, let's fast forward through all that. And so you have this time where I get arrested in 2014. Now, in 2012, I started a photography company and I, I did not succeed in the way that I could because I could not stop drinking and I could not stop doing drugs. And at this time, nobody knew that I was having this struggle. I started uh, becoming a wedge between my parents. Now, whether I separated them, I was the problem. They tell me no, but I know that I didn't help anything. Because being my mom's favorite, I knew that I can get away with so much and cause so much issue and still get away with it because my mom was around. Once again, I was taking advantage of a relationship in my life. And that became my habit. That became who I was, is taking constant advantage of the situation and using people. And I used to be, well, even when I was on drugs, people would take advantage of me 
And I would look over it and look past it and excuse it because I love being around people. I love being in an atmosphere where everybody's just having fun. And so if I had drugs, anyone else who wanted them had drugs too. Not realizing that when I was sober or on drugs, I would do the same thing that they were doing to me and become a leech to the people that love me the most and then allow the same thing to happen to me. And so in this time period, my mother goes to Arkansas and without putting their laundry out, because I don't really, I, honestly, I don't even know uh, details. I haven't asked because I, I really don't want to, I really honestly don't want to know. But I got arrested. And I'd seen this cop around town in Palestine. And he had told me before, because I had a, a license that was expired. I couldn't get it renewed. I don't remember what the reason was, but I could not get a license. And he saw me one time at a gas station. He said, hey, Tillman. And he remembered who I was. Of course, cops, they got, they got to remember stuff. And he said, if I see you, he said, you got your license yet? I said, no, sir, I'm working on it. Because I had to pay some sort of fine or something and, and go through this whole process. And I couldn't stay off drugs, so I couldn't get a job and I couldn't pay the fine. So it was just constantly, you know, round and round we go. And he said, if I see you again, I'm going to get you. I said, yes, sir. And he just, he just smiled and walked in the gas station. But he didn't, he didn't get me then. I was like, okay, I got off the hook again. And so when I got pulled over, I had a friend... Well, a friend, a drug buddy of mine. And I, at that time, when I got pulled over, I was the one that people were getting drugs from. I was selling to managers at restaurants, managers at hotels. I had a good reputation of always coming through with good product. And so at this particular time, I had this guy with me. I had my pipe and I had a, a bag that I forgot was in my pocket. I didn't think I had any more, but it was just a little shard. And we were actually going going to go take him to his girlfriend's house and we were going to get more and all of a sudden lights go on behind me and i'm like oh that's not me i'm not speeding he pulled me over and he was like oh as soon as he saw me he said oh mr tillman and it was the same cop and i'm like you gotta be kidding me out of all the cops that pulled me over it's this guy well i'd had some window work done somebody was working on a window because it wouldn't go back up and he had to take the door jam off and so the pipe that I had, I'd shoved it all the way down the door frame, like up inside the cavity, and they didn't find it. But they found them up in my pocket that that bag that had that little shard of meth in it. And then the the guy that was riding with me had an open beer in his hand, so we both got locked up. That dude got out within it may have been within a day. His grandma came and got him out. And when we were going in, he was like, "Hey man, you got you, if you you know if you get out, you gotta you gotta get me out. You gotta come back and get me." I said, "Yeah, yeah, okay, deal. Same here." Well, when I was being processed, this guy, which is embarrassing, but this guy that I went to high school with, he was a couple grades ahead of me. He walks up to me, and I'm like bawling. I'm still high, but my emotions are so crazy because I have somebody who knew me as I once was. And now sees me as I am. And it broke my heart. Because it was embarrassing. To be that person. In front of somebody who used to come to my dad's church. His whole family did. And all I could think about was. Who's he going to tell? Who's he going to talk to? He he got right up in my face. And he wasn't angry. He's just like Stephen. You got to stop this. You're going to end up killing yourself. And I knew he was right. Because I had had breakdowns before where I wanted uh, to stop everything and wanted to drop everything. And I had had 
you know, bottoms falling out where I text my parents and they come and get me. I'd be on the end of a street corner. I'd be bawling my eyes out. But then I end up doing it the next day or the next weekend because it sucked me back in with that alluring lifestyle because everybody, everybody loves Steven coming to the party because I was the life of the party. I was always having fun. Everybody just, people just love being around me. So they always asked me to go everywhere. And, and, and it was just, it was an addiction on top of other addictions. And so after I got processed and everything, and that guy that was in the car with me and he gave me the little spiel about we're going to get each other out if we got out. And he got out within, I think about 24 hours, maybe two days. He was very quiet in the jail cell. I never, he got out and I never heard from him again until I had a cell phone that was in my car. He came and picked it up. And that was about the last time I ever heard from him. And I started to realize once he got out and I didn't hear, I was in there over a month, didn't hear nothing. I can't believe this guy is supposed to be my homeboy. And he gets out first and he's not, where's my escape? Once again, I was wanting somebody to bail me out when I put myself in a spot. Even when I first got in there, I could not remember. And I was blasted, stupid high when I went in. And I could not remember my dad's, I mean my mom's phone number. I could only remember my dad's. Now, my, at this time, my mom is in Arkansas. She is not, you know, here in Texas. So I don't know what she would have been able to do anyways. But I had to call my dad and tell him that I was in jail. He said, I'm sorry. And he told me before. <laughs> he said, if you ever get if you ever get arrested, I'm going to leave you in there. You're going to have to find your own way out. And I'm thinking, there ain't no way my dad's going to leave me in here. And I knew that Easter was coming up. And so in my mind I thought that my dad was going to get me out so that I can be with my son for Easter and that's what I tried to use to bargain with him to get me out and I cursed him out and was bawling my eyes out on the phone trying because I was in a cell with like eight of the guys and I was trying to cover up my face so that nobody else could see that I was crying because I'm a grown man in jail and I'm in the midst of all these other dudes and I'm crying to my daddy on the phone because he won't come and bail me out. So I got up on my top bunk and I remember just covering up my head. They give you a blanket. You can keep your shoes, but they give you a jumpsuit. You have a mattress and you have a blanket. And I I covered up my head and I just cried myself to sleep. And for the first time, I can remember resting, like really resting. And I slept for maybe 11, 12 hours. I hadn't been asleep in days. And I remember as the days went by, slowly my mind started not being so foggy and started clearing up. I I felt that little taste of what Steven used to be before all this junk was a part of my identity. And so I, I talked to my dad again on the phone and, and I knew the next, I think it was a Tuesday, the next Tuesday was going to be visitation. Well, in this, in Anderson County, they have where multiple guys can be in this, unless they're given trouble or whatever the charges are. But in my case, there's a lot of other people that was in there on drugs and, and money laundering and things like that. Uh, I think they printed out fake money or something like that. A couple of younger guys was in there, and they, they got caught, so they were in there. I think they were from Louisiana or something. This guy had just been arrested. He came in, and he had he took his shoe off after the jailer left, which, by the way, the jailer was one of my best friends in high school. It was his dad. So that was embarrassing too. This guy comes in, he gets arrested. He comes in, he pulls off his shoe after the jailer leaves. And he said, hey, they didn't check my shoe. Anybody want some? And he had a big bag of meth. And they were chopping it up on the table while some guys were standing at the window watching. And by that time, I was sober. I remember them looking at me and they even called me Jesus. I guess I just looked like him. I don't know. But they said, hey, Jesus, you want some, man? Because they knew why I was in there. Because I had this conversation with them when I, when, you know, you get to know each other, you start talking and asking what you're in for and all this other stuff. It's just small, it's jail small talk is all it is. 
And I looked at him and I said, no, I'm good. And for the first time, and I don't know how long, I rejected something that had been binding me and tormenting me and controlling me. And what I said was, I want to see my dad through sober eyes for the first time in a while. And I knew that visitation was coming. I knew that he was going to see it in my eyes or he was going to see me again. And I wanted him to see me again. And so when visitation came, I made true to that promise. And I went and I saw my dad and I just started bawling. Of course, there, it's visitation time. So that means there's other people that's all the way down to. And I saw from coming out from other cells, I saw other guys that I went to high school with. They were in for the same thing. And I was like, man, this has gripped people that I, I, I never would have thought. And so I, I sat down and, and was face to face with my dad again. And I just, I started apologizing and I started weeping and crying and, and telling him how much I was sorry. That's all I could keep saying was, I'm sorry. Because I knew what I'd done. And my mind wasn't foggy anymore. And I could really see again. And at that moment, my dad and I started rebuilding our relationship again. Without any other distractions. Now, he didn't get me out. <laughs> I was expecting maybe he would, but he didn't. He told, he was true to his word. He said that was one of the hardest things he did was let me stay in there. And so I started getting to know the guys in the jail cell a little more. Come to find out, one of the guys that was in there, which was a father to a girl that I went to high school with, was in there for meth as well and had been to state jail several times and he was waiting to be processed and transferred again. He's probably going to get 20 years. Spent most of his life, most of his daughter's life, in and out of jail, state jail. And he said, oh yeah, man, I, uh, I I got a deal for you. You want you want to get out? You want to make bail? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. He said, what do you got? So I got a car. And at that time, I had a, a 2002 Mazda Protégé, a four-door white car with a spoiler on it. And he said, okay, okay, what do you think it's worth? And so I told him probably what it was worth. My daddy will make a deal for you. His dad was a bail, uh, bail bondsman. So he makes a phone call. And within the time of him making a phone call to the time that I got out, there was these two young guys Three, actually, I think. One was on the top bunk to my left, and then the guy below him, and the guy right below me. And at this time, I've been in there probably a month. Yeah, I had to, yeah. At least a month. Maybe a little more. And I found on the windowsill just a Bible sitting over there, and I started looking up scriptures. Just random. If you've ever done it, if you've ever been in a desperate need, and you just like, God speak, and you you open up the Bible and you point, like, "That's, that's what the Lord's saying. Well, you may think that's funny, and you may think that's not how it works, but at that time, it did. Everything that I needed to hear and everything the boy next to me needed to hear was directly in the scriptures that I flipped to. And I got to talking to him about God and asking him why he was in there and all this other stuff. And he said, yeah, I'm from Austin. And I talked to my mom and she's saying she wants to come and get me and take me back home. But I don't want to. I want to stay here and keep doing my thing. And and by the time that he got out, he told me that he was going to go back with his mom and start going to church again. And I look back now and I'm like, in the depths of my sin of who I was, God used me to minister to somebody else. When I used to get drunk all the time and high, I would argue with people if God was real. I would I would tell them what I have seen and what I have heard to convince them that God was real and he, he is who he says he is. In, in me being in a drunken stupor and high and everything else, talking about God and how real he is. So by the time I got out of jail, the guy who picked me up was a guy that we made a deal that we were going to sell some drugs when I got out. But right, I started getting that atmosphere again and people started talking about selling and dealing. And that was my thing, you know, going out and making, you know, spending all day trying to hustle and all that stuff. That was my, I I was living on the streets when I got arrested. 
Like I was living in my car. I forgot I left that out. My dad kicked me out. Uh, he, mom wasn't there to protect me anymore. And so he said, you got to go. And when I was screaming and crying at him, he was screaming and crying back. And he told me that was the hardest thing to show tough love to me because he loved me so much. But he couldn't, he couldn't allow that in his house. And he didn't know exactly what, but he knew something was going on. And so when I got immediately out of jail, uh, the guy who was giving me a ride to go pick up my car was working with the guy who was buying the car from me that, that helped me to get bail. Between those two days when I got out, I had some money. And I told this guy I wanted to buy some. I gave him 60 bucks, and he was supposed to go get it and come back. Well, I fell asleep. And when I woke up the next day, he was claiming that the drugs were right there on the counter. And something just snapped at me, and I'm like, why am I getting caught up in this again? These people who are supposed to be my boys are stealing from me. This is stupid. So I called my brother up. I didn't have a ride, so I had to call my brother. He was in town. I said, hey, man, come get me. I'm done. So I got my stuff, and so I left. Within about a week's time, I had I was so well-known in the drug community and the culture that I would have drugs come to the house a couple of times. And during this week of having the meth delivered, I think maybe twice. I had a little a sealed bag in my wallet. And my cousin John that I mentioned earlier invited me to come to the church where he was the worship leader. And he told me about a little, he said, hey man, there's a, you know, there's a little blonde girl up here. Why don't, you, uh, why don't you come see? I was fresh out of jail. I was like, uh, yeah, let's go see about that blonde girl. That's exactly what I did. He was still living in Palestine and the church was in White House. And so what I did was I went to that church and while I was there, God got a hold of me in a way in a way that I didn't in a way that I, I had not felt in a while. And so I went to meet her, the blonde girl, and she wasn't there. I went five different times. I even went to one of the worship practices and she was nowhere to be found. And he said, Man, I'm sorry, I promise you, she's she exists. I wasn't lying to you. Well, that fifth time that I went something changed in me and I went down to the altar and I said God I cannot do this anymore I can't live like this anymore and in my pocket the same wallet that I have now at that time I had a bag of meth in my pocket and when I said that prayer I went home that night back to Palestine and I put I got a thing of tinfoil because I didn't have a pipe because I broke it because I was I said I'm done and I lit on the crack and I, I, I sucked it through a straw and I smoked it that way and I cried. I didn't even enjoy the last hit that I had. And at this moment, when I'm high, when I'm getting high, I didn't even really get to get high because it was just a little bit. It was just a, just a little taste of it. It wasn't even much left. I told God, I said, I can't, I don't want to be like this anymore. I don't want to have this weighing me down on my shoulders. God, I need, I need strength. I need freedom. And so there was this whole process of where my cousin came out one night after we, we went out to eat and they were about to get in their vehicle and apparently he had talked to his wife Stephanie about me and they knew I was struggling and they knew that I had to get out of that town because it was too easy for me to get and they were loading up and they were moving to Palestine I mean they they were loading up and they were moving to White House where the church was and they said will you you want to come with this? And I said, no, I can't do that. I can't be a burden to y'all. And he looked at me and he said, come with us. You're our family and you need somewhere to go. 
And so I, I said, well, let me think about it. And so I ended up deciding, and we loaded up, and I moved in with them to White House. And that's the second time John saved my life. So I agreed to move in with them. We load up, we move to White House. And in this time, I finally meet the blonde girl that he's been talking about. At the time that I met her, I had actually just went with my dad before I met her to cut my hair and to shave my face. So she met me post-Jesus look. <laughs> but she and I showed her pictures after we were dating and got married and stuff. She said, I would never have looked your way if I would have saw you like that. So I had this time where I'm doing odd jobs with my cousin John. I'm living with him. Um, I can't really, I can't afford to do anything, and so I I, I really feel like it was a, a time for me to uh, dry out from the alcoholism, being a good atmosphere. Uh, John and I had several. Well, I say several. All the time we were talking about just life and and how good God is, and and he would be just pouring into me everything that I really needed as a support to be successful in staying away from drugs and to reforming and reshaping who I am into what I could be. And so we had this time of odd jobs and, and everything, and then uh, started playing on the worship team and kind of got to know uh, Jessie. The, she was the blonde girl that I went to see. So we started this dating process and when when I was kind of a, a smooth talker but when she first came and introduced herself to me on a Sunday morning before service she shook my hand and introduced herself said her name and I could not tell you what she just said I was so smitten by her I had no clue what, none whatsoever it was like I just went retarded and I could not think of what her name was all I could remember was I was so dumbfounded and just astounded by her and i told uh at the time of we had of the pastors there i had said out loud without even thinking that one day i'm gonna marry that girl and the pastor's wife heard me so she started trying to you know do her magic and make sure we were always you know doing things in the church together and all this stuff during this dating time jesse had never my wife had never had went on you know two or three dates she went to one and she's like no nope, not gonna work so she never had a first kiss, anything like that. And so I was the exact opposite. And so she told me no after, I think, a couple of dates. I said, well, will you fast and pray about it? Or will you will you pray about it? And then we'll we'll meet up and we'll at least let me give you my side of the argument of, <laughs> and try to plead my case of why I think we should continue dating. Because she was saying, sorry, no, it ain't going to work. I don't know what it was she didn't like. I don't care. I, I won. So we meet up at a Chili's here in Tyler, and I've been fasting and praying. I was this was a serious matter to me. This was not just somebody else that I was dating or trying to, excuse the phrase, trying to get in someone's pants. This was something that was I felt was put on my heart that I knew that she was going to be my wife. I can't explain it. All I can say was, I guess God put it there because I had never felt that strongly about something that I knew what the answer was before I got my answer. Take that for what it's worth. Translate it however you please. We meet up at Chili's. She orders her food, and I tell the waitress, no, I'm good. And she's like, you're not going to eat? I said, no, I'm fine. And so we start to talk as we're waiting for her food. 
And so we get on the topic because I want to know right away. I mean, I've been praying. I've been seeking God's face. I want to know what's going on. Like, I need some answers. I'm hungry. (laughs) And I said, well, you know, do you feel like God's told you no? And she said, no. And I said, well, then why are you acting like he has? She kind of looked at me and she's like, well, you're right. And I said, so does that mean that we can continue dating until he tells you no? She said, okay. And so I said, uh, waitress, I'll have some food, please. So I ordered some food. And so now we go back to Chili's and we'll accidentally, not by request, but we'll get, we've sat in our same spot. And I'll tell Tristan, uh, my son, I said, listen, this is where I talk Mama Jay. That's what he calls her, uh, into dating me longer. Let me throw this in there. Jesse and I are coming up actually this month on the 16th. We'll be married five years. And I went from living on the streets, addicted to meth and alcohol, and all the debauchery that comes with it, serving myself, only out to to serve myself and to leech onto others. And when I turned my life over to God, it not only got me off the streets, it not only saved my relationships with my mother and father and rebuilt them and restored them closer than we've ever been, it also led me to a woman that loves God with all of her heart and has compassion for people and loves to love and she is my rock she's my anchor because i'm i'll fly off the handle i'll be like all right let's go you know 100 let's just go 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 and she's like now hold up pump the brakes she is my anchor in the storm and i'm her wings in the wind so we complement each other so well i could not have handpicked somebody to be by my side and to do ministry with and to do life with and to do parenting with she's just perfect in every way for me then not only that, then God restores my house to the fullest. So I lived in my car. Now I have a a home that we own. I have a new car in the driveway. My son now lives with us full time. And we're the worship leaders and the youth pastors at our church. God can restore anything. Your brokenness, your bruised, your pieces, God will make into a masterpiece. God can turn anything that you have and he can make it into something more beautiful than you can ever imagine. So I wanted to give my testimony kind of a one-on-one type deal where I just let you know that you are not alone, you are not forgotten, and God's arm is not too short to reach down to anywhere where you are right now. So if you like this episode of Faith and Failures, make sure to like, share, and download. Tell people about the Facebook group And if you want to give a one-time donation, click the PayPal link below. We appreciate it, and I will see you all next time.